Well, I'm, I'm John Malella. I'm one of the elders here at Gateway Community Church. And I'll be bringing us the message today. Uh, we're in the third week of a series on the book of 2 Kings, an Old Testament record of the ancient kings of Israel and Judah. So if you missed it last week, I'm just going to give a quick recap. You know that Alex put our story in context uh, before we dive into our passage. So he gave us a great overview of the history of Israel, how Israel at the time of King David and then under his son King Solomon had expanded. It was a united country, strong and powerful, and how Israel was poised to become a regional power in the ancient Near East. But Solomon, King Solomon, although he started strong and he started faithful to God, well, he didn't end strong. Uh, some of you know the story that Solomon married a lot of uh, foreign wives uh, and they brought their gods with them. Uh, Solomon's heart got turned away from the worship of the true God and he introduced, reintroduced idol worship back into, into God's country, back into Israel. So after his death, what happened was the country split. There was a civil war and basically got divided into two separate kingdoms. Okay, I don't have any fancy graphics. I'm going to go old school. This is the north. This is the south. The northern kingdom was known as Israel. The southern kingdom was known as Judah. They split. A divided country was not strong when they had to face aggressive countries around them, such as Syria, Assyria, which became more and more aggressive as time went on. And over time, this northern and southern kingdom saw their territories shrink as these other countries encroached on them. They didn't have the power to stand up to these countries. But the Bible is pretty clear that this was not really a geopolitical issue as much as a spiritual one. And here's what I mean by that. The more that these kingdoms turned away from God, the smaller they became and the weaker they became. So we've got, we've got a shrinking kingdom problem, actually two shrinking kingdoms. What about the kings? Because that's how things ran in those days. There was a king over each kingdom. Um, well, did a little study on this. Um, and if you've ever read through this section of the Bible, you know that the northern kingdom, once Solomon is gone, um, they go through uh, 19 kings from the time of Solomon all the way to the time of what's known as the Babylonian exile, when basically all of God's people get evicted from the land. So roughly three, uh, 300 years, 400 years or so. Um, 19 kings in the north. Okay, not one of them was good. Not a single one was good. And I was thinking that's almost like, this is like rooting for a sports team you know, well, when was the last time you guys won the World Series? Oh, 300 years ago. That's how bad this was. Not one of these kings was good in the north, the 19. Um, in, the, in the south, the southern kingdom, out of 20 kings during that time frame, um, four of them were good. Four out of 20. That means they started strong and stayed faithful to God. 
We're going to look today at one of those four kings, Hezekiah. I'm going to talk about him. Alex started on this story last week. He gave us a great picture of this Israelite king taking the throne at a really young age. And immediately, he gets to work. This guy's a man of action. He starts reforming things. Um, he realizes there are high places. They call them high places. These are places on hills where basically people set up altars to, to uh, these, these fake gods. He has them torn down. He tears down these poles, the Ashtoreth poles. Again, places of, of idol worship. Tears them down. He's a man of action. He reinstitutes the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. So while he's doing this in the south, you know, cleaning things up, in the north, it's not good news. Assyria invades, and the north falls. Assyria deports its people. That's what they did in those days. You invade a country, not only do you take it over, not only do you take all their goods, but you take the, the best and the brightest of the people and you deport them. So that's what they did. So the north has fallen, um, and a puppet king is set up now to rule who's ever left. Assyria then has their sights on Israel's little sister in the south, Judah. Now, they've been bullying Judah around for years. Um, Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz, actually starts paying them tribute. Um, and what, what is that? Well, that's, um, that's basically when the bully wants your lunch money. That's how that works. You know, you, you get shaken down, or it's like, it's like the mafia comes in and says, um, you know what, we like the way you have this business here, and we want to protect it for you. It's going to cost you a little bit. The lunch money. So, uh, King Hezekiah follows in dad's footsteps with this. He tries the same tactic. He, wants to, he tries to appease Assyria. He pays them tribute. Where does he get the tribute from? Well, he goes into Israel's, into the temple itself, God's treasury, and he empties it out. Okay, so the gold and silver in the, in the temple, he gives it to Assyria, empties out God's treasury. Okay, so Assyria, here's your gold, back off, leave us alone. Now, we all know you can only appease a bully for so long. And after you've got nothing left to give and the bully comes back, what are you going to do? So Hezekiah tries a different tactic. There's a change in the Assyrian government. The old Assyrian king dies, and the vassal states, like what Judah was, um, they stop paying their lunch money. And they look to band with other countries. Oh, there's, there's Egypt. Maybe we can get together, we'll form a treaty, and we'll be able to stand up to Assyria the Assyrian juggernaut. What do you think Assyria is going to do with this? They're not going for it. So what do they do? Hmm. They send in the guys with the baseball bats. Okay, can you tell I was born in Brooklyn? Actually, here's what they send in. They send in a few thousand battle-hardened warriors. Horses and chariots, swords, Siege works, armed with cruel hate. They send them to Judah. And they begin to take the fortified cities around Judah. But they have their sights on the one city, the crown jewel of the kingdom. What Psalm 48 verse 2 says, 
uh, beautiful in its loftiness. The joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon, is Mount Zion, the city of the great king Jerusalem. That's the city that the king of Assyria wants. He's got his sights on Jerusalem. He wants the capital. So Assyria sends an envoy, sends a bunch of diplomats, and they're very, very sophisticated. They're native speakers of Hebrew, or at least close to native fluency, because when they speak to Hezekiah and the people, the people understand. And they tell Hezekiah and the people of Judah that um, you belong to us now. And if you don't surrender, if we have to come in and get you, well, hmm, here's what we're going to do. First, we're going to starve you out, and then we're going to come in and we're going to devastate you. I think this is a good time to pray. Join with me. Lord, you have given us these ancient stories to teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us. And we, as much as we're able, we open ourselves now to, to what you want to say to us. Um, use my words. They're flimsy. Um, but we, uh, we know you're here with us. We want to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at four Ps today. Okay, preachers do these odd things with uh, alliteration. We're going to look at the peril, the promise, the pause, and participation. I've already described a lot of the peril for us. A lot of the peril. It's not, it's not good. It's disaster hanging over these people's heads. It's peril. What does King Hezekiah do? Chapter 19, verse 1. It says, when King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. What's the first thing Hezekiah does? He tears his clothes. I was actually going to do this, but I realized my wife just bought me this shirt, and she's sitting right there, so I don't think she would really appreciate that. So you're going to have to use your imagination. Hezekiah tears his clothes. And he probably sounded like that. <laughs> A deep sign of grief. You tear your clothes. A deep sign of sorrow. A lot of times it's a remorse, remorse for offending God. And what does Hezekiah do? He takes off his kingly robes and he puts on sackcloth. He puts on a burlap sack, a suit of sorrow. Now we know again from other parts of Scripture that Hezekiah was a man of action. You know, when he saw the Assyrian threat start to bubble over a few years before, he actually got his engineers to dig a tunnel. He said, we're going to need fresh water. If we get sieged, by these people, we're going to need fresh water. So he actually had his, his engineers dig a tunnel through solid rock, five foot tall, two feet wide, 1,700 feet. It's, it's an engineering marvel. They did this without power tools, believe it or not. Um, archaeologists found this in the 1860s, and it, Hezekiah's tunnel. So uh, Hezekiah's a man of action. He does things like this. So what's, what's he going to do next? Well, he sends his own uh, envoy. Verse 2, it says, He sent Eliakim the palace administrator, Shebna the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. So again, they're all wearing the suit of sorrow, going to see the prophet. And they told him, they told Isaiah, this is what Hezekiah said, this day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come in the moment of birth and there's no strength to deliver them. It may be 
that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the field commander, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that survives. Pray for the remnant. Remember, the north is gone. All that's left is Judah. Pray for the remnant that still survives. So Hezekiah, he sends his leaders to the prophet Isaiah. By this time, Isaiah has been proclaiming God's word for about 25 years, thereabouts. Um, Interesting here what Hezekiah doesn't do. He had other options. Here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't rally his generals. He doesn't say, "Mm, let me get my chief of staff in here and uh, let's, let's go through our, yeah, how many troops do we have? How many men do we have that can handle a sword? How many chariots do we have? The answer would have been zero. I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, how many people do we have that can fight? Because I look out and I see a few hundred thousand of these Assyrians. Well, he, he's tried everything else. You know, he's tried, he tried the appeasement, emptied out the treasury. He's out of options, except for one. He's out of all options but one. He knows he's going to need to pull out the big gun in his arsenal. He needs the H-bomb. And the weapon he pulls out, the weapon he goes to is the prophet Isaiah. Wait, what? The prophet is a weapon? Stay with me for a second. Throughout the history of God's people, throughout the history of Israel, God did not want them to fight with chariots or horses. God's armies never had chariots, never had horses. And I think the reason why is that God did not want his people to rely on their military technology when they went to battle. God wanted his people to rely on him. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But as the Psalms say, we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. God provided better chariots and horsemen. Stay with me. Some of you remember the Elijah story. Elijah the prophet. Elijah was taken up to God in a whirlwind. Earlier in this book, talks about that. And his successor cried in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 12, My father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Hmm. 2 Kings chapter 13, Elisha, Elisha himself, the prophet, was, was laying dying King Jehoash went down to see him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Let me spell it out for you, folks. Israel's chariots are her prophets. Israel's horsemen were her prophets. God provided for the defense of his people by giving them prophets. Men and women were full of God's words, full of God's guidance for his people. That was their defense. And Hezekiah knew that. And he goes to the prophet. I want you to picture Hezekiah's group of leaders going before, at this point, Isaiah, he's a little old man. He's, uh, I'm picturing the white beard. And, and, well, some of you don't know this because you're not old enough, but you know, as you get older, you get more invisible. It's true, you get more invisible. You, You get less noticeable. Isaiah, I don't think, was noticeable. If you would see him in Safeway, you know, I don't think you'd notice him. But what was except for one thing. What was different about him? He was full of God's words. So Isaiah, we're in peril. We're in peril. 
disaster is looming. Isaiah could have said a few different things. Here's what, um, um, here's what he could have said. He could have said, ah, so you're all here from the king. Okay, um, where, where's, and where's the king? Where's Hezekiah? Oh, he's in the temple. Oh, I see. Oh, a lot of room in there these days, huh? Because he emptied it out. He gave away all those. No, Isaiah doesn't say this. Isaiah could have said, so you're, you're in trouble. You're here to see me because you're in trouble. I told you so. I've actually been telling you this for a few decades. Um, I even wrote a book about it. Nothing good can come from walking away from God. You're God's chosen people and you've walked away from him and now your backs are against the wall. Now you want to come back to him? Isaiah does not say that. Here's what he does say. When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, tell your master, go back to Hezekiah, tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen. When he, the king of Assyria, when he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. Did you notice the first thing that Isaiah tells them is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what you've heard. Wait, 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 don't be afraid. Do you know what we're facing? We're facing the end of our lives as we know it. Do you know what the Assyrians did to our cousins in the north? We're facing terror and cruelty and slavery. Isaiah, this is a disaster. He knows. He knows. Isaiah knows. And yet he says, don't be afraid. You know, I have to say, I'm no stranger to fear. I think some of you, um, some of you know that I struggle with anxiety. And I think, I think a lot of us do. I think it almost seems like epidemic these days. And anxiety is fear's cousin. Am I right to say, though, as a society, that we have become incredibly fearful? We have become incredibly fearful. It seems that we have a nonstop stream of information barraging us or misinformation that is formulated to produce fear. You know, even among God's people, fear is a tactic. It's used to raise money. It's used to rally support to our cause. And even here in Gateway, you know, we've, we've struggled. The leadership here at Gateway, we've struggled over the last year and a half to not make decisions out of fear. And if I'm honest, I think my worst decisions are made from fear. And maybe yours are too. Fear of what people will think of me. Fear of people being angry if I speak the truth. Fear of getting older. Fear of losing security. We've become incredibly fearful. So Isaiah says, don't be afraid. You know, often in the Bible, I think what we're given is, we're given, we're given a window into a different kind of living. We're given a window into a different kind of life. I think our tendency is to take this, do not be afraid, honestly, and, and take it as a, as a command, which it is, but then what we want to do is we want to add it to our checklist. We want to add it to our life checklist. Okay, so be a good person, um, okay, pay the bills, and um, uh, don't be afraid. We want to add it to our life's checklist. 
We want to we strive on our own power to not be afraid. I don't think that's what this is. I think what, what God is giving us here, I think, is a lens to say that, you know, there's a different way of, there's a different way of living. When you're in peril, there's a different way of living. There's a different way of looking at that. Don't be afraid. So Isaiah goes on to tell them in one of those stunning reversals in the Bible that not only, the, not only will this king of Assyria not put anyone to the sword, he's going to get cut down by the sword, and his own sons will do it. So what do we have here, our second P? We have God's promise. God's promise through the prophet Isaiah, no, he is not going to take the city. No, that's not going to happen. So verse 8, it looks like Isaiah's word is coming true. It says, when the field commander heard that the king of Assyria had left Lashish, he withdrew and found the king fighting against Libna. So it looks like there's some kind of, some kind of break in the action where they've, um, the field, they, they've withdrawn. You know, and I, I kind of picture this, sorry, I'm going to geek out. I did this in the early service. And hopefully there's some more Lord of the Rings people in this service than there were in the early one. I'm picturing this like the Lord of the Rings movie where Helm's Deep, you know, they're in the, um, in the fortress, okay, and they see the, the army of the orcs are out there. Uh, and there's thousands of them, and they're, they're ready to attack. Well, it's kind of like that here. And I could just picture at this point, it looks like, it looks like the orcs are retreating. You know, uh, look, look, Gandalf, the orcs are leaving. Well, not, not really. Uh, but I wonder if Hezekiah breathed a sigh of relief when he saw that. Wow, okay, so the field commander, he left. Okay, that was close. But Hezekiah, it's not quite over. You see, Sennacherib might be distracted, but he's still gunning for your city. Okay, so verse 9 says, Sennacherib received the report that Terhaka, the king of Cush, which is near Egypt, was marching out to fight against him. So what does he do? It says he again sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word. Okay, the bully is not giving up. He writes a letter. Say to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says, Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. <laughs> Surely you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? <laughs> Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors deliver them? The gods of Gozan, Haran, Reseph, and the people of Eden who are in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath or the king of Arpad? Where are the kings of Leir, Sepharvaim, Hina, and Iva? Yeah, where are they? Good question. You know why you don't know any of these names? Because they don't exist anymore. These people have been wiped out. Here's what's particularly deadly about this letter, about this message that Hezekiah gets. What's particularly deadly about this is that part of it is true. The Assyrians did take over all these people. They rolled right over them. And actually, Sennacherib is being modest. This is only a handful of people that he's destroyed. There were a lot more. You can make a catalog out of it. He's actually being modest. But he makes a mistake here. Um, makes a mistake about God. And here's, here's what I think the problem is. I think Sennacherib... Sennacherib has spent too much time in, in, a, in a comparative religions class in college. That's what I think. I think, when, 
I think when Sennacherib went to uh, Assyrian U, I think he took Comparative Religions 101, and I think that he, he sat there and he said, huh, he said, okay, so I've got all these gods, I've got Baal, I've got Molech, um, I've got Dagon, I've got Yahweh. Yeah, they're all kind of the same, and I rolled over all those other gods. So mm, I'm going to roll over, I'm going to roll over Yahweh too. Sennacherib has made a mistake because Hezekiah's God is not like the other gods. Hezekiah's God is real, and he's, he speaks, and he acts. Sennacherib, you've made a fatal mistake. But can I say this? We who have responded to God, who follow Jesus, don't we forget this too? Don't we forget that God is real? I mean, that sounds silly, but don't we? I'm convinced that we live under a barrage of, I'll call it propaganda. Yes, I'll call it that, propaganda that tries to diminish God in our eyes. It tries to shake our trust in him by pushing us to forget who he is, that he's different, he's real. Did you catch Sennacherib's other accusation against God? He says, hmm, this Yahweh, this God that you follow, Hezekiah, he's not trustworthy. He actually uses the word deception. He said, don't let that God deceive you. He can't protect you. You know, it's too bad Sennacherib was not familiar with Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, that says very clearly, God is not a man that he should lie. It seems to me that this is how temptation works in our lives. This is how all temptations work. They attack God's character by attacking the trustworthiness of his words. That's how temptations work. They attack his character by attacking the trustworthiness of his words. Think, think of this, all through the Bible. I'm reminded of a conversation in Genesis chapter 3. Some of you may know this story. Uh, it was a conversation between a serpent and a woman. Her name was Eve. And it kind of went like this. Okay. Eve. Baby. You're looking good. Nice outfit. Did God, did God really say, if you eat the fruit, you're going to die? Sounds kind of crazy to me. Um, no, that's, that's not the case. Um, see, he's, he's afraid if you eat that fruit, you're going to be like him. Temptations work by casting doubt on God, on his character, and attack the trustworthiness of his words. But God is not a man that he should lie. God is other. He's different. He's holy. There's no deception in him. If he says it, he's going to do it, and it doesn't matter how long ago he said it. That's the second P. That's our promise. God says it, he's going to do it. Back to the letter for a second. We need this to soak in for, for a second. Um, I was telling somebody earlier, when I first got this passage to preach on, I was a little bit upset once I started looking at it because I'm like, I don't get to tell the whole story. I don't get to tell what happens at the end because it is spectacular. Alex is going to tell us next week. But I'm glad I don't because we need to sit here. We need to sit in chapter 19 verses 1 through 19 for a little bit. 
because the peril is really, really bad. We need to sit here for a little bit and just, just understand that and feel it. The mix of truth and blasphemy in this letter is an existential threat to God's people. If this comes true, they will suffer unimaginable agony. Unimaginable. This is worse than a Nazi invasion. Loved ones killed and raped and then deported into slave labor and then to be absorbed into an alien culture. Their identity is God's people slowly dissolving. That's what they were facing. So here's, here's what we see. We see a pattern of the peril. We see the word, don't be afraid, and the promise. This is not going to happen to you. And then we have the pause. God's promise always comes with a pause. Before God's promise is fulfilled, there's a pause. I was trying to think of a picture of this, and here's, here's what I came up with. God's promises are like, um, they're like the cicadas. Okay, I see some of you nodding. Yeah, God's promises are like, um, let's see, big awkward bugs um, with white bellies and beady red eyes. Yeah, John, that's a good one. Yeah, don't know what this guy is talking about. Okay, here's what I mean. Um, cicadas. We moved to Northern Virginia, my family and I, in 2004 in the late summer. So just picture, just picture a conversation with a neighbor saying, wow, you guys, you just missed the cicadas. They're going to be back in 17 years. Your property is going to be crawling with these things. I'm telling you it's going to happen. So picture 2005, a year later, John Malella goes to the backyard, looks out on the deck. I don't see anything. No, cicadas? I don't know what, I don't know. I don't know what these neighbors are talking about. Picture another year goes by. Hmm. 2006. Okay, come out on the deck. I don't see anything. Maybe, did he mean Japanese beetles? Yeah, those things are a pest. I don't know. So 15 years goes by. And I forget about it. Until one day, I go out in the backyard and I see holes in the ground. And then I see these little exoskeletons up the trees. And before I know it, there's billions of these things. There's always a pause before the promise, before the fulfillment. There's always a pause. That's why in the Psalms, the Bible's prayer book, so many of the Psalms ask God, how long? How long until you do something? How long until you act, until we see the fulfillment? How long, God? Not only this, but in the pause, sometimes things get worse. Sometimes things get worse, don't they? Look at this letter. Look at this letter. The letter raises the threat temperature because there's no more, there's no more soft talk of, hey, we're going to bring you to our land where you're going to have your own fruit trees. No, now, it's, now the gloves are off. We're coming in to get you. Sometimes in the pause, things get worse. In this case, what, why? I think God is waiting for something. I think he's waiting for Hezekiah. Did you catch in the early verses of this chapter where he said, uh, Hezekiah said, go to Isaiah. Um, it may be that the Lord, your God, will hear all the words of the field commander. Okay, and then he, he asks Isaiah, please pray for the remnant that survives. Did you, catch, did you catch that? 
the Lord your God? Isaiah, you pray? I think there's something that Hezekiah himself needs to do here. So let's listen to what he does. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and he read it. Then he went to the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wooden stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Huh, that's different. Hezekiah shows himself here to be a true son of David. As the representative of his people, he goes before God and he asks for deliverance. He is a true king. In alignment with what Solomon had prayed in that same temple 300 years before, when he dedicated it, he said, when you pe where people go to war against their enemies, whenever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. What was God waiting for? He was waiting for the king to take up his role and intercede for his people. God was waiting for Hezekiah to step into his kingly role and intercede when disaster was hanging over their heads. And that puts me in mind of a better king, a true and better Hezekiah, who emptied out his treasury, the treasury of his own majesty, and became one of us and interceded for his people when the disaster of the separation, their separation from God, hanging over their heads, put them in a worse spot than having an army surrounding their city. He interceded for you and me with his own body, and he showed himself to be a true son of David, a true king. Do you know him? Do you know this, this king? Do you know him today? this King Jesus. What about us, though? Those of us that we, we know Jesus, we follow him, we look at this and we say, well, but I'm not, I'm not a king. Uh, Hezekiah was a king, but I'm, I'm not. Or am I? Or am I? You know, I've often thought that becoming a Christian is kind of like it's, like, it's like being an orphan. And um, you're kind of like one of those uh, Dickens movies, I guess, where you live on the, you're living on the street, Oliver Twist, and you're, you know, you learn how to hustle, right? You learn how to get by. You learn how to survive. Um, you know, you learn how to feed yourself. Okay. But you're, you're an orphan. And one day you get adopted, and you get adopted by a very, very rich man, very kind man. And he, you, all of a sudden you have a house to live in. You don't have to live in the park. You, you, you can live in a house, and it's a beautiful house. And there's plenty of food. You don't have to hide food anymore in your pockets because other people will steal it from you. you there's plenty to, plenty to eat. You have toys. Um, 
and you, you slowly realize, wow, my new dad, he's really, really rich. And, you know, I actually heard, heard him talking on the phone to somebody, and they called him Lord. He must be some kind of royalty. So if he's royalty, what, what does that mean I am? If you're a follower of Jesus today, you are a king. You are royal. Jesus is sharing his royalty, his kingship with you. Revelation 1.6 says he has made them, he has made us, kings and priests unto God. Jesus shares his kingship with us. Why? So that we might do what Hezekiah did, that we might stand before God and intercede for the people, that we might participate with God in his work. So I have to ask you this. Are you open to this kind of life? This is a different kind of life. Are you open to this? This is a kind of life that faces bad news, and instead of being crushed by fear, goes right to God with it. Takes what was intended to destroy and brings it to God. What if, what if we became the kind of people that when we ask God for, for rescue, because yeah, we need rescue, we also ask him for revelation, as Hezekiah did. Hezekiah said, God, do this so that the nations might believe. What if when we pray, that's the kind of people we become? When we say, God, whatever you do, whatever help you give me, let it be for those that have no interest in you right now, that they might know you, that they might be captivated by you and want to know you. Stand with me, please. We're going we're gonna to pray. Lord, we know that um, for some of us, we're, we're stuck in the peril still. Um, we've got bad news. We've got a bad diagnosis. Um, we've made bad choices, or things have happened to us, not of our own doing. Um, or, Lord, I, I also know that there are people here that they're, they're not connected to you. They've never made this their own. And I know they can do that today, Lord, just by reaching out to you, because you have certainly reached to us today. Lord, others of us, we know your promises, but um, we're in the pause, and uh, some of us are getting weary And I know we live in the great pause until the time when you, you bring history to a close and, and we can, you know, your kingdom comes. That's, that'll be a reality in, in everything. Um, and we get, we get weary, Lord. And yet, yet you call, you call us to participate with you, which is crazy because we're, we're so weak and broken and yet, you want to invest our lives with, with purpose and meaning.
Lord, we thank you for what you've said today, and uh, I pray, uh, Lord, for all of us that uh, none of us will walk out of here the same way we walked in. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.